This presentation is called uh, Dwelling, Pathing, Caring. For the Heideggerians amongst you, you will no doubt pick up a, an allusion to his essay, Building, Dwelling, Thinking. I think that's about the only connection, though. <laughs> but it does... Um, I feel suggest that in in this practice, what has always uh, concerned me is where it is really grounded. Um, sometimes the language of Buddhism becomes somewhat abstract, somewhat, in a way, cerebral, uh, theoretical, cut off perhaps from the primacy, the immediacy of of our dwelling on this earth and I find it interesting as I mentioned last night how emptiness was originally thought of as a as a dwelling and then over the centuries it um, mutated into an ultimate truth that one gained uh, insight into through various uh, highly refined epistemological states uh, like direct, non-conceptual, uh, yogic perception of emptiness as the absence of inherent existence. This is quite a long way from the Buddha's, for the most part, I dwell in emptiness. And then describing that as a, a dwelling in a non-reactive or a non-asavic state pathing again that's not an English word but it, it should be it suggests that a path is a practice it's a way in which we move through life and through the world and through our constant interactions with others and our environment and I th what I'm going to look at this morning is how we can then build onto that foundational um, space with the idea of caring. That brings it more explicitly into an an ethical um, into an ethical perspective. And I'm going to start with a dialogue we find in the Sangyutta Nikaya between King Pasenadi of Korsula and uh, Gautama and the king asks uh, the Buddha is there one thing which secures both kinds of good uh, I'm translating uh, good from the Pali Atta or Arta in Sanskrit um, usually would be something like meaning or purpose but I think it's legitimate to think of it as the good to which we aspire as ethical beings. And then he defines this good in two ways. The good pertaining to this world, ditta dhammaka, that which we can actually see for ourselves, and the good that pertains to what follows after death. Now, of course, in, in traditional Buddhism, this would refer to one's future lives. But I feel that... Um, Today, if we don't, particularly if we, if we can't really understand what that means in terms of reincarnation, nonetheless, 
I feel that a great deal of our moral and ethical concern, our moral care, has to do not with just securing a good in this lifetime, but considering and seeking to secure the good in the world that will continue to exist after all of us are gone. That's how I would read that today. And I think that's very important. Uh, it's one thing to put aside reincarnation and so on, but that should not and uh, need not imply that it diminishes in any sense at all our responsibility for what uh, our actions uh, will lead to after our death. And the Buddha replies, yes, there is one such thing, care. This is my translation of apamada. I'll explain why I come to that choice of terms later. And then he gives an analogy. Just as the footprints of all living beings that walk fit into the footprint of an elephant, so care is the one thing which secures both kinds of good. We have another passage, uh, this is in Sanyuta 45, where he says that all skillful states, all virtues, are rooted and converge in care. And care is considered the chief among them. So however we translate apamada, we have to find a word that conveys this sense of the virtue that includes all other virtues. Um, that in which they are rooted and converge. We're looking for a more, a more overarching term. This sense kind of got lost with um, things like the Abhidhamma, which started listing all of the virtues um, one to ten or one to however many there are in the different systems and apamada just gets slotted in um, as one amongst many of other virtues and we easily lose sight that there's something distinctive about apamada uh, that is not characteristic of the other virtues and that is its inclusiveness in um, when I studied this um, uh, with the Tibetans, my Tibetan teacher, um, again, it is we started, started it in the context of the Abhidhamma Samuchaya, which is a Mahayana uh, form of Abhidhamma, uh, which defines all these terms. Um, and it does list it as one amongst other virtues. But the definition is quite interesting. It says... Care is that which cherishes, cherishes all that is good while guarding the mind against dwelling in afflicted states. Cherishes all that is good while guarding the mind against dwelling in afflicted states. So in some ways we might think of it a bit like the English word conscience. 
It's our kind of moral compass. It's our sense of, it's our intuitive sense of what it is that is the right thing to do in a situation as opposed to the wrong thing to do in a situation. And uh, in that sense, it again holds the, um, it, it holds the ethical frame of our lives. It's the broadest context. When I translated Shanti Deva's work, um, there's a whole chapter on Apamada, um, chapter four, and I translated it there as conscientiousness. And um, the way in which it's uh, understood in Shanti Deva's work, this is the Bodhichari Avatara, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, is that the text starts with a kind of almost a rapturous affirmation of the bodhicitta. And Shantideva sort of gears himself up quite emotionally to uh, taking into account the suffering of all sentient beings and then taking on this vow um, to not cease his striving along this path until all beings are freed from suffering. And he formalizes this as the bodhisattva uh, commitment, this altruistic commitment. And that brings us to the conclusion of chapter 3 in his book. There are 10 chapters. Chapter 4 is called Conscientiousness or Apamada. And uh, it starts by basically Shantideva coming down to earth. He says, he, he says, it must have been crazy to have made that vow. <laughs> and how can I possibly do this? And Apamada is what is required to somehow um, retain that vow, that commitment, without being somehow overwhelmed by self-doubt or being overwhelmed by all of the other uh, emotions and, uh, and fears that so easily can override this sense of um, this commitment to the good. Uh, again, it's a, if, if you haven't read this text, I would really recommend it. So, nonetheless, um, all of the ways that, in, that we might translate apamada, whether it be care, whether it be conscientiousness or conscience, and in most of the translations today that come from the, the Pali uh, scholars, it's usually translated as diligence or vigilance. And sometimes it's often thought to be you know, just a slight variant on mindfulness. In fact, I've seen one translation of the Dhammapada by a, a, a terror from Sri Lanka where he renders it just as mindfulness. Um, that's kind of interesting. But um, uh, again, does it capture the the whole. But all of these translations actually fail to communicate that the word apamada is again a negative term. It starts with a privative a, a, pamada. So what does pamada mean? Literally, apamada is not pamada. What does pamada mean? Pamada means something like negligence, indolence, 
and it's very often compared uh, to the state of being drunk. So when you read the text of the fifth precept, it says, refraining from intoxicants that lead to pamada, uh, heedlessness, it may be translated. Um, if we take care as the translation, it would be that lead to our being uncaring and careless. That's how we might also render it if we think in terms of, of it being care. But I think we can gain some understanding of at least the etymological uh, implication for understanding care as it being the opposite of being befuddled, drunk, negligent, careless, uncaring. So it's the opposite of that. Again, it's not just, as we've said already, the absence of those things, because then my iPad would be full of care, because it's not drunk, it's not negligent. So once more to emphasize that these privatives, these negatives, um, very often are used to suggest the opposite of. Now we do this in English too, uh, but we often don't notice it. For example, the word impeccable. Uh, he, this person, hmm? this person uh, lives an impeccable life. Now, I suspect for most of us, when we hear that word, we think of it as a positive virtue, uh, if something is impeccable. We don't notice that it actually means, it's also a negative, im is like not, and peccable comes from the Latin peccare, which means to sin. So impeccable means not sinning. But I doubt that's how we... Uh, register the meaning when we talk of something being impeccable. So it shows also that one of the treacherous things about translation is that if we're too literal, we can actually miss how the word is actually used, which is what matters. But nonetheless, the etymology can often reveal something about what Heidegger calls the wisdom of the language. So it, it's revealing, but be careful not to just translate literally. Then we're liable to miss the point. Now, um, in an earlier discourse, uh, Pasenadi had described um, uh, the consequence of being a, a king, a ruler, who possesses power and wealth... He says that this uh, leads to becoming intoxicated and careless. In other words, if we are privileged, if we um, live a life like, of course, we do in, here in the United States, at least, at least probably for most of us, if we don't live in impoverished communities, um, privilege itself can make us careless, can make us uncaring. And it suggests how, you know, many lives in our privileged society uh, are spent stumbling about, somewhat distracted, you know, grasping and groping for one more stimulation after the next. 
veering in our minds from one thought and fantasy and desire to the next, uh, forgetting what we really intended to do as soon as a more diverting possibility comes our way. Uh, so in some ways, Pamada is describing um, uh, this kind of slightly out-of-control life in which we're just prompted by one stimulus to the next, to the next. We veer around in a kind of undirected uh, kind of way. As we've said, Apamada in English, if we think of it as care, has the happy accident of being able to use both in the sense of being careful, which is where we get perhaps diligent, vigilant, as well as caring, where we are concerned for the good, what we seek to realize in our lives. And I don't think it's, um, again, uh, by chance that when the Buddha was very close to death and uttered his last words, um, he again refers to care. His famous last words are, uh, things fall apart, tread the path with care. Apamada. Again, that's his last word. His injunction is not be wise, compassionate, mindful. No, the virtue he, um, he highlights um, as central is the virtue of care. In some ways, Pamada, uh, sorry, yeah, Pamada, the opposite of care, this kind of carelessness and so on, um, is, as I think I might have already mentioned, um, somewhat similar to the idea of Asava. Asava, um, translated many different ways, uh, all the way from canker, never quite understood that one, uh, to taint, um, defilement, um, but uh, Lee Brasington translated as intoxicant. But uh, literally it means outflow or leak or effluent. It's that which leaks out. And I think there's something to be said to that. It's the way Pamada, this drunkenness or this kind of indolence, this carelessness, is that we're constantly driven by what sort of just leaks out of our minds, a kind of incontinence. And the, um, it's as though we have a kind of deep-seated tendency to succumb almost helplessly uh, to impulses that we don't admire within us but have an enormous charge and power over us. And there are four asavas. There is sensuality, becoming, views, ignorance. And they're asavic in the sense that these, um, these uh, powers within us um, are constantly leaching into our minds, leaching into our behavior, uh, in spite of our better intentions. It's again similar to the Greek concept of akrasia, 
Very similar. Again, it's a privative, A. Remember, Greek and Sanskrit and Pali all use the A as the negative. And krasia means control. It means being out of control. And the Buddha uses this expression a lot um, of taming and training the mind. The mind is sometimes compared to uh, an elephant in rut, which in India is, the, is, is a primary metaphor for being out of control. It's very dangerous. Or the monkey mind, the monkey that jumps from one branch to the next, just grasping after whatever um, uh, is appealing in the next moment. So the training and the practice that we do uh, is very much about working with this out-of-controlness of the mind. One of the best, um, the best ways in which this has been uh, stated um, in uh, Western uh, literature uh, is in the essays of Montaigne, uh, Michel de Montaigne. And Montaigne, is, is well known, was a government official. He was the mayor of Bordeaux. He was an advisor to the king. And at a relatively young age, I think he was about 38, uh, he decided to retire from the worldly life, as it were, and retreated to a tower on his estate um, on the Dordogne River. It's about an hour from where I live. And the tower still stands. I go there regularly on sort of pilgrimage. And that's as he left it, pretty much as he left it. So, but the, one of the most telling and moving uh, uh, statements he makes when he, he, he first starts writing, he thinks that um, he, he had, has this idea that he would be able just to allow himself to leave his mind in total idleness, caring for itself, concerned only with itself, calmly thinking of itself. In other words, the retreat fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) But to his surprise, uh, and these are his words, uh, my mind bolted off like a runaway horse, (laughs) taking far more trouble over itself than it ever did over anyone else. It gives birth to so many chimeras and fantastic monstrosities, one after the other, without order or plan. (coughs) Sound familiar? (laughs) This is a wonderful uh, uh, description of what is called pamada. It it catches it brilliantly. And in a later essay... um, Again, he brings, he keeps coming back to his wayward mind. And uh, in the essay On Repentance, he's, uh, he's, t- he's trying to write about himself. This is his great project. And he reflects, I am unable to stabilize my subject. It staggers confusedly along with a natural drunkenness. So he uses exactly the same image. Um, as there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful honesty in Montaigne uh, that uh, I think is extremely close to describing what we try to 
in a sense, accomplish when we <coughs> practice meditation. So, coming back to this starting point, rather than thinking of care, therefore, as a discrete mental state, it's perhaps much closer to the governing perspective of the person who is committed to the practice of the Dharma, what I've called this ethical life, this ethical perspective. And this image the Buddha uses, the elephant's footprint, to describe it, is also employed uh, in another sutta, this time by Sariputta. This is Majjhima 28, which is called The Greater Discourse on the Simile of the Elephant's Footprint where the elephant's footprint doesn't stand for apamada, it stands for the Four Noble Truths. And as I would understand that, the fourfold task. So care um, is a, a complex sensibility that guides one's relationship to life as a whole. And we could understand the four tasks as a kind of phenomenology of care. In other words, if we uh, seek to uh, uh, pick apart, as it were, tease apart uh, the key facets or dimensions of what constitutes or makes up care, it would come down to embracing suffering, letting go of self-centered reactivity, uh, seeing the stopping of such reactivity, and cultivating a way of life that aims to realize the good, the Eightfold Path. Um, earlier I also compared um, uh, the Buddha's uh, path as being a solar living, the Eightfold Path, in a way, is understood through the metaphor of, of shining with the heat and the warmth uh, and the light and the luminosity of the sun, selflessly giving oneself away. And again, we find another power, uh, metaphor, this is in the Anguttara, where care is, is compared to the sun in a cloudless autumn sky dispelling all darkness from space, says the text, as it shines and beams and radiates. So care confirms this idea of the Buddha's Dharma as being uh, a solar life, uh, a selfless giving away uh, with compassion and with wisdom. Another important source on care is in the Dhammapada, uh, verse 21. This is quite a famous verse, where, which says, Care is the path to the deathless. <coughs> Carelessness, the path to death. The caring slash careful do not die. The careless or the uncaring are as if already dead. So here, uh, care is quite explicitly um, identified 
with um, the process of uh, human flourishing. In other words, being, becoming fully human, living your life to the full. Whereas Pamada, its opposite, is compared to a state of death in which you're not really alive. You're just kind of running on automatic pilot, being pushed and pulled by your instincts and impulses and fears and attachments. And that's not really a life uh, in the Buddha's terms at all. That's a kind of death. So in this sense, um, care is equivalent to treading the path itself in the terms of the fourfold task, like a sun, we be- begin to see the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the widest context of our practice is held in this container of care. Going back to the dialogues with Pasenadi, care is also revealed uh, to be a social virtue. Um, where are we? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so I'll just read the text. Um, Persenity, um is a king, but occasionally he would go off on retreat, and then he would come back from these uh, periods of solitude, and he'd report to the Buddha what uh, he had experienced. And he says, while the Dharma has been well expounded by you, it has been done so for those with good friends, not with, with bad friends. Persenity understands that uh, a fruitful practice of the path depends on the kind of company you keep. So rather than it being a purely solitary affair, uh, it's a public act supported by relationships with other men and women. And this becomes the, 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 the starting point of uh, the Buddha's reflecting uh, on what that means for the practice to be a, um, a public or a social act embedded in a network of friendships. And he recalls an instance where he was staying at a town called Nagaraka. And he says, Then Ananda approached me and said, Good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. This is half of the spiritual life. And I told him, Not so, not so, Ananda. Good friendship is the entirety of the spiritual life. It's a very famous statement. For when one has a good friend one will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. Therefore, great king, you should train yourself in this way. I will be one who has such good friends. And when you have these good friends, you should live in intimate reliance upon one thing, care. So again, friendship is tied to care. So care 
is somehow sustained um, not just by your inner practice of meditation, but it's sustained by the matrix of relationships one, one develops with those who are committed to realizing comparable values in their lives. And I think what's implied here is that we learn about care by uh, cultivating friendships with caring people. We associate with those who are caring and those who are careful. So rather than treat it uh, just psychologically, of course it is, I think, a, a key psychological uh, process that's being described, we understand it not by you know, getting the right definition from the Abhidharma, but we understand it by seeing it embodied and realized in the lives of those we respect. And if you live your life also in such a caring and a careful way, that will have the effect of inspiring others to do the same. And at the conclusion of the conversation with the king, he says, when you, great king, are living with care, then the women of your harem, we all have this problem. <laughs> when you, great king, are living with care, the women of your court, let's say, your vassal lords, your soldiers, your subjects in town and countryside will think the king lives with care, in intimate reliance on care. Come now, let us live likewise. It's very clear from that passage. And then as a consequence of this, you yourself, great king, your harem, your treasury, and your storehouse will be guarded and protected. Now this, Shantideva makes a similar kind of connection. Um, that which you care about, you will guard and protect. And this is where I think care works, where diligence simply wouldn't make much sense here. That which you are diligent or vigilant about, you will guard and protect. No, you guard and protect those things about which you care most deeply. And I think the consequences of this today are, I think for many of us, if we care about the planet, if we care about uh, sentient beings, if we care about species that may be threatened with extinction, that will be the foundation upon which we'll act in a way to guard and protect them against harm. So this is very much a virtue that um, uh, is concerned with living in this world in a way that we seek to safeguard what we value. In other words, this is an incredibly rich idea. I mean, the different facets that we find in the suttas uh, reveal that it's, uh, um, 
something for which it's very difficult actually to define. And yet I think it's an, another attempt, like the idea of dwelling, pathing, likewise this caring uh, is expressing something very fundamental about what it means to be human. Again, I think it, it uh, uh, can be somehow expressed in terms of the vows and the commitments we make. Uh, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to free them all. That's an expression of care. Uh, defilements are inexhaustible. I vow to sever them all. That's an expression of care. Dharma gates are numberless. I vow to... Um, Realize them all, or is that the word? I vow to learn them all. That's maybe more obscure, that third vow. But again, a Dharma gate, this is a term we find in Chinese, not in Sanskrit or Pali. Um, Dharma gate, if you think about it, is a, again, it's a space. And every situation in life can be seen as a Dharma gate. In other words, it offers us an opening uh, for a practice. In other words, we can go, we, we can enter that situation as though it were a gate that leads to the path. And in that sense, uh, I think it's comparable to the experience of, of non-reactivity or nibbana. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. All of these are basically four ways of uh, committing ourselves to a life of care. Now, as we enter into this path, which is where we left off in the talk last night, um, it's said that three fetters fall away. Uh, we described the path, the stream entry yesterday in the classical way of commitment, again, to awakening, to the Dharma, to the community. But another, probably equally old tradition, we find it in the Sutta Nipata, describes stream entry in a more negative way, namely as the loss of vanity, the loss of doubt, and the loss of silabhata, which I'm going to try and explain. In the Vipassana world, this is usually how stream entry is understood. Um, in Theravada Buddhism, even in the Tibetan tradition, uh, this is the standard definition of stream entry. It's about um, uh, the falling away of these three fetters, the three obstacles, three blockages. Um, the first one, I think, is quite close to the English word vanity. In other words, a kind of narcissistic preoccupation with me which again is not a choice we may necessarily make, but it's kind of just what the organism does to uh, constantly um, uh, hold to its own need to survive. But this becomes, in a sense, um, uh, distorted uh, in turning into a rather excessive, um, uh, giving excessive importance to me, as opposed to everybody else. It's the Pali 
The Pali word is Sakaya Ditti. Now Sakaya Ditti, Ditti means view, and Sakaya means something like the whole body. It's the view of the whole body, literally, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I like vanity. I mean, it's sometimes translated as personality view, which frankly doesn't mean much. Um, it's difficult to know what that means. Um, the Tibetans translate it as jigtsok latawa, which means the view of the transitory composite. Also not terribly, <laughs> also not terribly helpful. Uh, but what does this mean in, in ordinary English, not Buddhist hybrid English? Um, I would go for vanity. But again, that's... Uh, yeah. Conceit is not bad. Conceit, though, is mana. That's another term. Um, it's diff- really is difficult to find uh, the right word. But it's a kind of, you know, sort of narcissistic self-interest. And it suggests that, you know, when you enter into this path, you do so not out of narcissistic self-interest. In other words, you're actually taking a risk to commit yourself to values that do not have to do with me getting more out of it. That's crucial. So the experience of the stopping of reactivity is the stopping of a kind of narcissistic self-regard. Um, falling away of that because we have learnt to embrace life totally. We've cultivated a more empathetic relationship with others in the first task, which itself, I think, uh, makes us realize that so much of our reactivity is basically petty. It's, it's, it's kind of um, trivial. Um, it's compulsive, it's repetitive, it's, it's sort of deeply unfulfilling. And the more that we uh, open our hearts and our minds to life as a whole, that in itself, I think, undermines the uh, seductive power of reactivity. We become somehow embarrassed by the selfishness and the pettiness of our thoughts. And as that falls away, as we let go of that and it falls away and it stops, it opens up into this non-reactive space that is somehow selfless. And that's, again, going back to your question about equanimity. Equanimity, you can be quite you know, balanced between greed and hatred or desire and fear. Uh, but you can still be very much uh, uh, preoccupied with, it, with, with your own self-interest. So the entry into the stream of the path uh, is that that vanity, if we can translate it that way, begins to fall away. Also what falls away is doubt. And doubt here, not in the Zen sense of great doubt, which is a kind of radical astonishment and uncertainty as to what the hell is going on, which is a perfectly healthy doubt. Uh, This kind of doubt is vacillation. Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't know whether this would be the right thing to do or that would be the right thing to do. Um, This wavering mind that can't settle on any particular value to uh, pursue. It's a, it's, a, it's a hindrance. It's one of the five hindrances. 
The Tibetans have a wonderful image for this. They say it's like trying to sew a piece of cloth with a two-pointed needle. <laughs> But the one I'm interested in here is the um, is the third of these uh, fetters, which is called the loss of sila bata. Now sila bata tends to be translated as attachment to rites and rituals. Uh, well, that's actually sila bata paramasa. But some of the early texts just use the word sila bata. The text in the Sutta Nibbata just says sila bata, not attachment to sila bata, but sila bata itself, which doesn't mean rites and rituals. This is a kind of a Buddhist sectarian spin on this idea, and it's basically pointing the finger at those deluded Brahmins um, who think that the practice is all about doing rituals in the correct way and practicing rites and reciting mantras and so on. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this now as virtue and vows, which sounds completely different. The fact is the word sila is the same sila as in sila samadipanya, morality. Bata or vrata in Sanskrit is a very old Indian term and it has to do with performing a rite in the correct order or sequence, doing the rite correctly. That's where we get rites and rituals from. Um, now, I would interpret this um, as reading it almost hyper-literally as moral rules. In other words, butter is rules, sila is morality, And as a compound, I would suggest it means moral rules. Or sila bata paramasa would be attachment to moral rules. Now this suggests to me um, something to do with uh, morality as opposed to ethics. And um, one can understand why the traditional Buddhist you know, don't really want to say, well, you should, you should let go of morality that, or let go of the precepts. That, 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 that would be a bit spooky. You don't want to suggest that people somehow have an ethic that's not governed by rules. But frankly, I think this is what this is all about. I think what we're describing here, what the Buddha's describing here, is a shift from what we would call a legalistic morality into a situational ethic. In other words, when you enter the stream of the path, when you become um, independent of others in the practice, which is another quality I've already mentioned, in which you um, are uh, seeking to realize this path as something which is your own, again, another expression that's used, then your ethics is not any longer determined by cleaving to a rule book, but your ethics becomes how you respond to specific life situations as they occur in the course um, of your experience. 
So we move from an ethic of, we move towards an ethic of responsiveness that is governed not by rules, but is governed by wisdom and compassion. Um, or is governed, if you like, by care. What is the mo You don't therefore ask yourself, what is the right thing to do in this situation? And then you, in your, you then refer back to the Rolodex of Buddhist rules in your head, and you go, dig, 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 dig. Ah, right, shouldn't do that. Sorry, uh, no, not, not allowed. <laughs> and instead, you see each moral situation as a Dharma gate if you like, um, in which you are called upon to respond to in the most loving and wise way. Um, we could also think of this in terms of doing what is most appropriate as opposed to doing what is theoretically correct. By doing what is theoretically correct you can actually be deeply cruel. I mean, there are examples. I don't think we find this in the suttas, but the classic example in a lot of Buddhist moral thinking is if you see a deer running across the way and disappearing into the wood, and then a few minutes later a hunter appears, and the hunter says, which way did the deer go? You would say, that way. Now, you're lying, right? You're, you're, you're not telling the truth. And this is given as, a, as an example of how under certain circumstances the, what's appropriate to do as a person who's committed to you know, the flourishing of life is to break the precept. And this becomes very explicit in the, in the, in, in the, in the bodhisattva ethics. Uh, which evolved, I suspect, as a reaction to a rather narrow-minded legalistic morality that we find in, uh, in the Vinaya, for example, uh, where everything is about doing it according to the rule um, rather than doing something because it's appropriate, wise, loving, and caring. So... Um, in this sense, we acknowledge that every, any moral dilemma of any significance or weight has the quality of being um, uh, unique and unrepeatable. In a situational ethic, you try to understand the, the, the complexities of the unique situation at hand and then to seek a way of responding to it uh, that cannot be, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, prejudged in some abstract way. So if we take, for example, um, a woman who may have been raped, who's pregnant, who has many children, who lives in poverty, uh, whose health is very fragile, then do you... Uh, um, encourage or suggest or support um, abortion in this case or do you say no killing is wrong the child must be born I mean this is a 
typical example of our time. The whole debate around choice, you know, it's usually framed in terms of right to life and, and, and choice and so on. But I think in this context, it's a good example of, you know, what is the appropriate thing to do in this situation? And there is no abstract right or wrong answer. And this means also that this ethics of care is inevitably an ethics of risk. You cannot know the outcome in advance. You take the risk that you might actually make things worse. Uh, religious people who adhere to a legalistic morality can very easily uh, suffer from the conceit of always being right because they've got the book to back them up. They've got the Vinaya, they've got the Torah, they've got um, the Quran, whatever it might be. And you just follow the book and you feel somehow then morally uh, sanctified. But frankly, I think that can actually be an, a profound abnegation of responsibility, a failure to fully engage with care and love and wisdom with the often extraordinarily difficult choices we have to make. In looking for a foundation for this kind of situational ethic, I think we have to put the precepts to one side or to think of them really as just a broad guideline, really, um, and seek another foundation. Likewise, to get out of this idea of you know, these karmic laws that if you kill, you'll get X punishment in a next life or whatever, which is a kind of, again, a, a systematic... Um, theory of basically punishments and rewards which is somehow supposed to be uh, you know, built in in some strange mystical way to uh, the consequent the, the, the relation between an act and its consequence in the Sutta Nipata we find uh, a verse that I think provides us with this um, with this foundation. It's verse 705, if you want to look it up. And this is the translation of K.R. Norman. As I am, so are they. As they are, so am I. Comparing oneself with others, one should not kill or cause to kill. So this is an ethic uh, based on um, empathy on the capacity to identify with the other as though the other were oneself. Now this is sometimes called the golden rule. And um, it's very close to the Christian do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. Uh, Shantideva chapter 8 goes into this in great detail and I think in a very beautiful way in what he calls the exchanging of self and others. It's exactly the same idea. Um, and there I think um, we find an ethic that is very consonant with the idea of embracing suffering, letting go of reactivity, seeing the stopping of that reactivity and then 
acting in a way that is appropriate to the situation, moving from reaction, therefore, to response. So the Eightfold Path, the practice of care, is basically uh, a life of responsiveness, responsibility, uh, that is governed by principles of empathy and care rather than uh, a legalistic uh, set of moral rules. We'll stop there today, this morning. We have half an hour now to walk, to rest, to drink tea, to do whatever we do. Um, and uh, we'll meet back again at 11 for a sit and then for a final discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.